This morning I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Galatians, to Galatians chapter 6. Preaching this morning our third installment in a brief series of messages that focus upon what I think is one of the grandest statements in all of Scripture concerning the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Once again, let's pray for the help of God in opening up his word. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you for that infinite love that flowed from your heart when you sent from heaven above your dear son, that he might die the accursed death of the cross, that we might go free, and that we might be with you forever. And we pray that as we meditate upon this fact, that we would be refreshed at the, at the foot of the cross, that we would have our eyes fixed, especially upon our Savior who died, that we would be pleased, that you would be pleased to draw near to us, enabling us to see him by faith, and that you would be pleased also to put it into our hearts, that kind of response that would be fitting for such a sight. We pray for any unconverted person here today, too, that you would work in the heart of such a person to bring them by faith to look to the one that was hung upon a tree. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In his very helpful book on spiritual leadership, J. Oswald Sanders made this trenchant observation. Egotism is one of the repulsive manifestations of pride. It is the practice of thinking and speaking much of oneself, the habit of magnifying one's attainments or importance. It leads one to consider everything in relation to himself, rather than in relation to God and the welfare of his people. Al Bryant tells a story of a young gifted pastor whose preaching was a cut above most preachers. And as the ranks of his congregation began to swell, his head followed suit. And after he delivered his latest barn burner one morning, One of his loyal parishioners earnestly shook his hand and said to him, You're becoming one of the greatest expositors of this generation, Pastor. Well, as he squeezed his head into the car and slid behind the steering wheel, his weary wife alongside him and all the children crammed into the back seat, he couldn't resist sharing this little story with his wife. So caught up in the heady swirl of the woman's exaggerated compliment, he said, Mrs. Franklin told me that she thought I was one of the greatest expositors of this generation. No response. 
And then fishing for an affirmation, he glanced again at his silent wife with a weak smile, and he brought it. I wonder how many great expositors there are in this generation. And unable to resist the opportunity to set the record straight, she quietly and graciously said, one less than you think, my dear. Well, there's a kind of boasting that is one of mankind's most repugnant sins. There are few people that you want to spend time with less than people that are always talking about themselves and bragging about what they have done. Braggarts are insufferable to be around. But there is a kind of boasting or glorying in which we rejoice not in ourselves, but in something or some person outside of ourselves. A baseball fan delights in talking about his team when it's on a winning streak. Uh, Music lovers, they delight in uh, talking up their favorite composer. And usually we boast about something that somebody we admire has just done. Maybe our favorite quarterback has just thrown five touchdown passes in one game. Against overwhelming odds, perhaps, a soldier risked his life and delivered his unit from annihilation. And so this raises the question, then, among all God's works, which work is the most worthy of praise? Well, in our text, the apostle gives us this decisive answer. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our first two sermons on these verses that we read a moment ago, we sought to answer three questions, and these questions are in your outlines. And because these sermons have been spaced out over so many months, I think the first one was about maybe eight months ago, something like that, I want to begin by summarizing our answers to these questions. There are four of them in your outlines, and we consider two and part of the third. We're going to finish up the third during this hour. In the first place, we asked, well, what did Paul refuse to boast in? And he tells us the answer to that question in verses 12 and 13. He says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Well, in these words, the apostle reiterates what prompted him to write to the Galatians in the beginning. There were Jewish Christians that, we call them Christians in the broad sense, there were Jewish Christian teachers that had come to follow up on Paul's evangelism. And they believed the basic truths of the cross, the empty tomb. But there was one thing that they thought needed to be added to Paul's message. People needed to get circumcised, these Gentiles, if they're going to be part of the church. And since these Judaizers, they believed that circumcision was necessary even for salvation, naturally they wanted to circumcise as many people as possible. And so when they visited the Galatian churches, they pressured, therefore, the Gentile Christians to be circumcised. And the problem was not so much circumcision in and of itself, but as Paul puts it in verse 12, these would compel you to be circumcised. They were demanding, you see, that these be circumcised that they might be saved. And why were they doing this? Well, at the end of verse 12, the apostle says they did this that they might avoid persecution. 
And then another reason he gives is that they wanted to seem successful. Verse 12, he says, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. They thought that apparently that as the more foreskins that they collected, the more impressed people would be back at their, their home church in Jerusalem. And uh, false religion is always making a big show about external things, and that's what was in the hearts of these people as well. And regarding these externals, the apostle declared, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us again to our second question. Well, what then did Paul boast in? If he didn't boast in circumcision or anything else, what did he boast in? Well, in verse 14, he tells us it is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to his fellow countrymen, this was a strange thing to boast in, a cross. The first century Romans especially, there was nothing that was more despicable, nothing that they despised more than the cross. They even used words that avoided mentioning crucifixions or the cross. And so this leads us to ask then, what, what then is it, the, it, what kind of a cross and what is there about this cross that Paul glories in? Well, in our text, he emphasizes three things. He says, first of all, it is a cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this full description, in contrast to the shame of the cross, we have what Spurgeon calls a pomp of words. Paul stresses that the crucified Christ is the anointed Christ, the Messiah. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is the Lord, supreme over all. And yet he is also one who made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. We also emphasize that included in this expression is a third idea, the, and that is the doctrine of the cross. When Paul often speaks of the cross or the word of the cross, he's talking about the message or the doctrine of the cross. He gloried in that doctrine. And in a word, in this place, Paul is referring to the great biblical doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine that Christ was made sin for us, that he was offered to bear the sins of many, and that he was offered up as a sacrificial lamb in our behalf. And then in the third place, in our last sermon, we went on to answer a third question. Why did Paul boast then in this cross? But even Christ himself can't be our glory apart from the cross. In one of his sermons on Galatians, John Calvin says, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cannot be our glory, but only in this respect that he was crucified for us. In Paul's day, there were preachers in Galatia that insisted on circumcision to be, in adding this to the cross. And there were others that wanted to decorate the cross, so to speak, with philosophical niceties. But Paul gloried in the bare, naked cross, all stained with blood and despised by men. And why did he glory in it? Well, in the cross he saw many glorious realities that captured his heart. We saw last time, first of all, that in the cross he saw a vindication of divine justice. There's nowhere... The justice of God is more clearly displayed than in the death on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There was never such a satisfaction, a complete satisfaction of the justice of God as at the cross. Even in hell, men will never be able to pay fully for their sins. Only at the cross was justice fully satisfied. The law of the infinitely righteous God was satisfied to the full. The punishment, the full punishment required by the law was not remitted in the least. And instead, in the person of his dear son, God himself paid the debt that was incurred by our sins. And for this reason, Paul calls it the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of God and man. God does his part, now you do your part. No, it's the righteousness of God, full stop. And then we also saw, secondly, that in the cross, Paul saw a display of God's love. In Romans 5, he writes, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you and I hear, for instance, about a soldier throwing himself on a grenade in order to save his buddies, we say such love for friends is an amazing thing. But on the cross, our Savior, he didn't suffer an instantaneous death by an explosion. He suffered a slow, excruciating physical death and an even more excruciating spiritual torment. And it was not for friends. It was for his enemies. And in this, there's never been such a great display of the love of God. We saw thirdly, then the cross, the apostles saw the basis of, of our justification. The false teachers in the province of Galatia, they were saying that you have to get circumcised, you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. In the Galatians 2.16, Paul categorically declares that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What was happening with these Judaizers was a classic case of subtracting by adding. They were adding their works, their ordinance, the circumcision, to Christ's work. And by adding to the work of Christ, they were subtracting. Those who rest by faith on the finished work of Christ on the cross, these ones, Paul says, are the justified ones. But those who try to add to the finished work of Jesus, these are not justified. It's justification by faith alone that he preached. And those who rest by faith alone on the finished work of Christ on the cross, these ones are justified, and them alone. And then in the fourth place, we saw that in the cross, Paul also saw a marvel of divine wisdom. To Paul, that which God devised and brought to pass at the cross, this is the epitome of wisdom and skill. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Jews request a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The plan of salvation through the substitutionary suffering of Jesus on the cross, it's a very simple plan, and yet it's utterly sublime. For thousands of years, left to themselves, men never came up with this sublime plan. 
They never thought of it. Even the disciples, when they were told again and again about what was to happen, they didn't get it. It was beyond their minds. And the more we study this profound theme, we find it to be an ocean of profundity. And these depths we will never be able to plumb. And then last time we saw a fifth thing, that in the cross, Paul also saw the door of our hope. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Nobody who has truly seen the cross of Christ can ever again speak of hopeless cases. The cross is a door of hope, even for the vilest of vile. The world is a very filthy place, and it was filthy, spiritually speaking, in Paul's time. And the Roman civilization, it was exceedingly brutal. It was exceedingly debased. And the masses were sunk in vices that we can't describe lest our souls be defiled. But Paul felt that he could go and preach in the very darkest of places, to those places known for filthy sins, even places like Corinth. And even now, the message of the cross has the power to lift up the fallen and deliver the despairing. At the cross, there is a door of hope for the most hopeless and wretched sinner. At the cross, there is hope even for you. But now this brings us up to a sixth and seventh reason why the apostle gloried in the cross. And I had thought I was going to go on to our fourth question, but we're going to save that for another sermon. We want to just concentrate on these two things this morning. We come in the sixth place to see that he, that he gloried in the cross because it is the foundation of our assurance. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Where can I go to find the basis of a well-founded hope of eternal life? Where can I go to find peace and rest about my relationship with God? What is it that assures me that I will never be cast away, that I will never be lost? Where, 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 gonna, where am I to go for that assurance? Shall I go to the law? Shall I compare my works and my actions and my words and my thoughts with God's perfect standard of righteousness in the law? Far from it. That would just destroy me. That's not going to give me assurance. Shall I look to my gifts and graces? If I'm a true Christian, there will be evidences, there will be graces. But how can I see in this the foundation of my assurance? Because these graces are imperfect. Shall I seek comfort in my own faith, in my love, in my patience, in zeal, and in prayer? Well, at some moment when my heart is especially drawn to the Lord, shall I say, surely my heart could never get cold again? You and I know that can never be so. It's amazing how we can have our hearts warm to the Lord Jesus, and an hour, late, we can, hour later we can be cold as a stone. That's the way our hearts are. So, dear ones, this I know. If I look to any of these things, I will soon despair. And yes... A true child of God will want to obey God's law. And it's true that those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they can see in their hearts graces that were not there before. 
And there will be times when one's heart is so filled with the joy of the Lord that he or she could just wish that this experience would go on forever. You know those experiences. But ultimately, there is only one assurance, there's only one solid basis of my acceptance with God, and it is the cross of Christ beheld by faith. This is my grand argument before God. I am assured that he went through the horrors of Golgotha to redeem a lost soul, even me. And he will never let that soul perish, which has cast itself by faith upon him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Paul envisions mankind being at the bar of justice before God. And charges are laid in trials that take place, as you know. And what charges are going to be laid against me? Well, I can lay lots of charges against my own heart. But ultimately, who is going to be able to bring a successful charge against one of God's elect? It's God who justifies. It is he who pronounces righteous on account of the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus. Who is he that condemns, Paul asks? It is Christ who died. This is our assurance. This is the one upon whom we can rest. It is this one who was also risen, who is even at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Listen to the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. He says, I make this confession, and I make it very boldly, that I never knew what rest of heart meant until I understood the doctrine of the substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now when I see my Lord bearing away my sins as my scapegoat or dying for them as my sin offering, I feel a profound peace of heart and satisfaction of spirit. The cross is all I want for security and joy. Beneath the shadow of the cross, I sit down with great delight and its fruit is sweet unto my taste. And isn't this just what we sang a few moments ago. Sweet the moments, rich in blessing, which before the cross I spent. Life and health and peace possessing from the sinner's dying friend. Here I rest in wonder viewing all my sins on Jesus laid. Here I see redemption flowing from the sacrifice he made. And isn't it this that we confess when we sing Liddy Edmonds' hymn, My faith is found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Dear ones, This is my only argument. When it comes to everything that could give me any assurance, especially when I've sinned, it is this that 
helps me plead my case before God. Bless God, I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died. It's enough that he pleads for me. Here is the solid rock upon which I stand. Shall I look to my obedience? Yes, I seek to obey him. But my obedience has got a lot of cracks in it. And it's a crumbling piece of rock to stand upon. Shall I look to my graces? Their graces are there. At least sometimes the Spirit shows them to me. But all too often my sins obscure my view of those graces. And, and, and so I, this morning as I speak to you, am I speaking to somebody here who believes but does so with trembling? You believe in Jesus, but you're troubled also about what else you see in your heart. You've confessed his name in the waters of baptism. But you tremble perhaps to think about coming to the table even this morning later on to have the bread and the cup. I urge you to find rest in the rock of ages that's cleft for you. Go to the one who still bears in his hands and in his feet the nail prints of the cross. As you go to him, use words like these, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And so, dear trembling saint, this is the one solid rock on which you can stand. I can't tell you of any other solid rock no other rock is there to find rest and peace than this. The cross and the cross alone is the ultimate foundation, you see, of our assurance. And in this cross, therefore, Paul gloried, and so do you and, he, you and I. But this brings me now to a seventh reason why Paul boasted in the cross. In the seventh place, it is the power of evangelism. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As Paul went forth with the gospel, he did this in the face of great opposition. And in addition to the opposition that resides in every sinful heart, because there's this sinful prejudice against the gospel in every heart, but added to this, there were cultural factors that stood in the way of accepting the gospel when Paul preached it. And here in 1 Corinthians 1, he speaks of the cross being a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, these Jews, they were looking for signs all the time. It wasn't enough that Jesus fed 5,000, because Moses, he, he fed more people. And they were always looking for a sign, especially they wanted the kinds of signs that would demonstrate that Jesus has come to throw the Romans off our yoke and to he's come to restore the kingdom to Israel. Those are those kinds of signs that meant something to them. They were looking for signs. The Greeks were interested in something else. They wanted to listen to people that had impressive rhetoric or people that were philosophically skillful and, and they wanted to listen to people that would would be give kind of the impressiveness you see in the way in which they would uh, give their oratory. 
And so you see a message about a Savior that's subjected to the most degrading thing of all, the most despised thing of all, the death of crucifixion. This was the height of absurdity to them. And so did Paul then conclude that, well, you know, these Jews, they're not going to listen to the message of the cross because they're looking for something else. And these other people, they're not looking for a cross because they want some highfalutin philosophy. And so I need to maybe change my message a little bit here to see if I can kind of, when I'm in the presence of certain people, kind of change the message and preach it a little different for the Jews, preach it a little bit different for the, for the, for the Greeks. So did Paul conceal, therefore, the more offensive aspects of his message? Well, far from it. Instead of hiding the cross, which you think he might do, he boldly and he proudly proclaimed it. And this is the most glorious part of the message, he says. And in fact, the very thing that some people might suppose to be a weak point in his message is what he called the power of God unto salvation. The message of Christ crucified, this was his weapon of choice. In 1 Corinthians 1, we see how he says this. In verse 18, notice with me what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. You see what he says here. They're looking for signs. The others are looking for these highfalutin wisdoms. But we preach Christ crucified. But, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And now skip down to chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul was preaching, and he fully knew it, a message that was very offensive to the ears of his hearers. And there's, even to this day, nothing that's more opposed to a, the pride of the human heart than this message of the cross. And yet, it is the proclamation of this pride-slaying message of the cross, this is the grand weapon of our warfare. This is how we will have success in gospel endeavors, the proclamation of the cross, this is a weapon, as Paul puts it, is not carnal, 
but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It is the proclamation, you see, of Christ crucified. It is this proclamation. This is the instrument which the power of God uses and with, with which he puts forth his power to save sinners. So the cross, this is the grand theme that Paul preached. This is the grand theme. This is the great weapon that you and I must use. And this is the, the, the grand theme, dear people, that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Other religions, you see, they have laws and they have moral precepts. They have forms and they have ceremonies. They have punishments and rewards. But no other religion has a dying Savior. Did Buddha die for people? Did the Hare Krishna, did he, did he die for people? Did, uh, is there any other religion that preaches a dying Savior? None might say, my friends, except for this one religion, the, the, the true religion of the religion of the cross. These other religions have nothing to say of a cross in which our sins were taken away. This is the crown. This is the glory of the gospel. A religious teaching, dear people, that calls itself Christian but contains nothing of the cross. This is a miserable, this is an ineffective substitute for the genuine thing. The cross is the grand distinctive of Christianity. I remember my father telling of a boy in Nepal. And I was born right up near the Nepali border in India, just in the foothills of the Himalayas. And I remember him telling of a boy in Nepal who encountered a Christian in Nepal. And that would have been a rare thing because it was a, not legal there to be a Christian. And the Christian that met this boy, he told him that if he were to cross over the mountains and go into India, that he should look for a building, he said, and this building would have a cross on it. And he showed him what a cross would look like. And there he would hear the message of the cross. Well, if I'm remembering my father's account correctly, because it was so many years ago that I heard him tell of this, after making the long trek over the mountain on down into India, this boy at last found a building with a cross on it. But he was bitterly disappointed. Because it was all you see talk about certain sacramental rituals that this is what he heard about and this was the emphasis and this is what he saw. And so he was disappointed. But at last he found another building with a cross on it. And there he heard the message of the cross, and he was saved from his sins. The cross is the grand agency by which pastors carry out their work. It doesn't matter what problem has to address. Whatever it is, you see, whenever he went into his spiritual toolbox for a tool with which to address a particular problem in a church, the first tool he always selected was Christ and him crucified. Speaking of the cross, J.C. Ryle, he writes, I, for one, would not be without it for all the world. 
I should feel like a soldier without arms, like an artist without his pencil, like a pilot without his compass, like a laborer without his tools. Let others, if they will, preach the law and morality. Let others hold forth the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Let others drench their congregations with teachings about the sacraments in the church. Give me the cross of Christ. This is the only lever that has ever turned the world upside down and made men forsake their sins. And if this won't, nothing will. Never was there a minister who did much for the conversion of souls who did not dwell much upon Christ crucified. Luther, Rutherford, Whitfield, Machane were all most eminently preachers of the cross. This is the preaching that the Holy Ghost delights to bless. Likewise, the cross is the secret of all missionary success, not only of pastoral labors, but the labors of a missionary. Nothing but the message of Christ crucified has ever moved the hearts of heathens. To the extent that the cross has been preached, to that extent, missionary endeavors have prospered. This is the one weapon that's won victories over the hearts of every kind of sinner in every culture, in every land, whether it be Africans or Indians or Greenlanders or Brazilians or Chinese or South Sea Islanders, all have heard the message of the cross. This is what prevailed in those places. Brethren, said a North American Indian after his conversion, this was many years ago, I have been a heathen. I know how heathens think. Once a preacher came and began to explain to us that there was a God, we told him to go back to the place for which he came. Another preacher came and told us not to lie nor steal nor drink, but we didn't listen to him. At last, another came into my hut one day, and he said, I am come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven and earth. And he sends to let you know that he will make you happy, and he will deliver you from misery. And for this end, he gave man and he gave his life a ransom. Or he became a man. He gave his life a, a, a ransom. And he shed his blood for sinners. And so this heathen went on to say, I couldn't forget those words. I told them to the other Indians. And an awakening, awakening began among us. I say, therefore, preach the sufferings and death of Christ, our Savior, if you wish your words to gain an entrance among the heathen. This kind of preaching has also been a central feature of genuine revival. The preaching of the cross is the great weapon that the Holy Spirit uses in the crusade against evil. In old times, vast crowds, they came together in desert places sometimes. They came together on hillsides, on the moors, and often at the peril of their lives to hear preaching because it was illegal. That's why they had to go out into the fields. And what did they come to hear when they came to those fields, etc.? Did they come hoping to be dazzled by some kind of a brilliant lecture in philosophy? Is that why they went out there? In the dead of the night when persecutors were hunting them down? Did they want to come and hear pretty moral essays? I don't think so. They came to hear the grand story 
of the way that the grace of God was manifested in the sacrificial death of his own dear son on the cross. I wonder how today's preaching compares with that kind of preaching. Would the modern gospel create a spirit of martyrs and move people to go out on the hillsides to hear it? Would happy talks about cultivating a better self-image or about all the wonderful things that are about to happen in your life? Is there anything in that kind of preaching for which a man might go to prison and death? I don't think so. Does the health and wealth gospel that fills stadiums today, does this cause men and women to flee from the wrath to come and come to the one you see that bore that wrath in behalf of sinners? I don't think so. They don't want to mention anything about the wrath of God or judgment or about the cross. What kind of preaching has God been pleased to use in revivals? Yes, some things have to be preached, the character of God, the law of God. But there's something that lies within the grand old message of the cross. This, in times of revival, is the thing that sets hearts aglow. This is what touches the spirit and the lips of the preacher as with a live coal. This is what ignites the hearts of those who listen to the preaching with a flame that's come from the altar of God. And oh, that this would come again upon this land. Oh, that we would see a day in which the preaching of the cross, dear people, runs like fire throughout the the land. Dear ones, a day is coming, and it may not be too far off, when your pastors will either pass from this life into glory, or they will not be able to preach for some other reason. And this thought, it makes me wonder, if I have sufficiently preached the cross. I've had to reflect upon that as I've written this sermon. Have I preached Christ and him crucified enough in the years that I've been here? But it also stirs me up to to urge you, dear people, that above all else, those whom you receive in future years as pastors, they must be preachers of the cross. There's no higher thing that they must be devoted to than that. Years ago, a bishop of the Methodist Church, and he was noted for his evangelistic fervor, he said, I wouldn't cross the street to make another Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian of a man. I wouldn't lift a finger to make a mere church member of anyone. But if it pleased God, I would go around the world again and yet again telling perishing sinners everywhere there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. On the sanctuary end of this building there is an empty cross and years from now could it be that somebody seeing that symbol might come into this building and hear the word of the cross. Would they hear it here? Or would they be like that Indian boy that got disappointed? And yes, we're to preach the whole counsel of God. This includes a a wide range of doctrinal themes. We need to preach the doctrine of creation like we've been doing and other doctrines. And it's also very true that not every single sermon has to have the cross as its central theme in that particular sermon. 
Not every text has the cross as its primary theme. But it's also true that among all the themes that we preached, we must regularly seek to beat a path to the cross. But my concern for our church and for our nation, it's not limited to those who are going to be here when, when I'm gone or when my voice for another reason has been silenced. At this very time, dear people, our nation is going through a time of great crisis. It's a time of desperate evil being unleashed. It's a time of great trial. A pandemic rages throughout the land. And according to the CDC, around 280,000 now have died from COVID-19. We don't know if those numbers are exact, but it's a figure that's well over a quarter of a million. And some that are, some states are seeing higher rates of, of, of hospitalizations and more deaths than per capita than ever. And it's feared that the next couple of months are going to be difficult months. And at the same time, our country, it's being ripped apart politically. Since the days of the Vietnam War and the protests that took place on our streets and the riots back then, I think our country has never been so divided as it, as it is right now. There's some that fear that we've never been closer to a civil war since the 1880s than what we're going through right now. I said 1860s, I should say. Many people are pressing for a radical overhaul of our government. The media, big tech, are doing their best to ensure that just one side of stories are being told and not the other. And night after night, a virtual avalanche of purported evidence of election fraud is being presented on conservative outlets. And roughly half the country it believes that this election was stolen. I don't know if it was stolen. I, I, I don't have enough information to make a, a solid conclusion. But I'm deeply troubled, whatever the case is. It's an indication of a country that's being ripped apart. A country that is going through the throes of great division and people pulling it, some people pulling it in a very evil direction. Well, how are we to respond to these things? What's the response? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Some two millennia ago, Judea and Jerusalem, they were going through a time of great upheaval. Worst of all, at that time, the religious leaders had incited the mob to cry out for Jesus' crucifixion. And the mob prevailed in turn on Pilate to carry out the greatest crime in history. And so after the death and resurrection of Christ, what was the response of the apostles? Was it to call for a special prosecutor to investigate the crimes? Is that what they did? Sometimes that's necessary. But is that what the apostles did? Was it to campaign for ousting corrupt religious and political leaders? No such thing was done. Maybe it needed to be done, but that's not what the apostles did. In obedience to the Lord, they waited for the descent of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit descended upon them, what did they do then at that time when, when the Spirit came upon them? They preached Christ crucified and Christ risen again from the dead. Notice again, and we've looked at this chapter so many times, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. 
after Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel about what's happening in those days, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then after Peter goes on to speak about how the death and resurrection of Christ was the fulfillment of the promises made to David and to others, and how God has fulfilled that promise, he has exalted the Lord Jesus to be the right hand of God. And then he goes on and says this in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he's getting to the cross again, whom you crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was the primary response of the apostles to this national crisis, to this time when Jerusalem was being torn apart, Judea was, was in bondage, the primary response of the apostles was lifting high and preaching much about a crucified and risen Savior and calling upon men and women to repent and to look to a crucified Savior, a risen Savior in faith, and for, for faith, in faith for forgiveness. Centuries ago, on the south coast of China, high up a hill overlooking the harbor of Macau, Portuguese settlers built an enormous cathedral. And they believed that that cathedral would weather the time. And they placed on the front wall of this cathedral a massive bronze cross that reached high into the sky. Not too many years later, a typhoon came and God's finger work swept away man's handiwork. And the whole cathedral was pushed down the hill as a pile of rubble, and much of it right into the ocean. Except that front wall and the bronze cross stretching toward the heavens. Centuries later, after that typhoon, there was a shipwreck. And this shipwreck was out a little bit beyond that harbor. And while some people died in that shipwreck, there were others that, that survived. And one of the survivors was a man hanging onto wreckage from the ship, and he was bobbing up and down in the waves. And just as one of the waves crested, and he looked off, he could see this cross, tiny because it was at such a distance. This man's name was Sir John Bowring. And when he made it to land, and when he lived to tell the story, he wrote what became a famous hymn. And that hymn, it begins with these two stanzas. 
In the cross of Christ I glory. Towering over the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. And then after two more stanzas, it returns, the hymn does, to where it began. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Well, the message of Bowering's hymn at this kind of a time, the time that we're going through, a time when our individual lives and when our national experiences on all signs, it seems like there's nothing but wreckage that's happened, nothing but ruin. Lifted high these days is a cross. And we could look to that cross. When all of life seems to be crushing in on top of us, when everything seems like it's being torn apart, we need to look to the cross. We need to look to the empty tomb. And we need to call to mind the glory of the substitutionary atonement that we worked out upon that cross. And the resurrection that proved to be a vindication of the substitution having been made full and complete. That's what we need to look at these days. That's what we need to preach. That's what our country needs. In the midst of this national upheaval, towering over the wrecks of time, the cross still stands. May God help us to point our sinful nation to the only thing that can rescue it from ruin. May God help some poor sinner even, some sinner in this room, to look to that cross and I'm not talking to a bronze cross upon a, on a hill or the cross that's at the other end of our building. You know I'm telling you to look to the, the one who suffered upon that cross, the Lord Jesus. To look to what he did upon that cross, to his atoning work. May God help you to look to that cross. And maybe the Holy Spirit's begun to show you that your life is being, being a wreck. You're, you're not able to control your heart and your life the way you thought you might be able to. And of those who crucified Jesus, the very ones who by their wicked hands, Peter says, you took him and you crucified him. If those people could be saved, they were among the 3,000 saved that day. If they could be saved, you too, no matter what you've done, could be saved by looking at Christ and, his, and, him, and him crucified. It's my prayer that having looked to the crucified and risen Savior, this will change your outlook on everything. And things that you were once proud of, things that you once boasted in, you won't be proud of anymore. There'll be one thing. This will be an effect of, that you've truly looked to the Lord Jesus. You begin to think highly of him and what he did. And you begin to boast in that and glory in that in your heart and your mind and with your lips. And all the things you once were proud of will look like wreckage now. And you will begin to say with God's people, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you look to him? Won't you come to him? Won't you be saved from your sins and from the wreckage of your life? And you that are the children of God, will you not come afresh to him again as we remember what he has done in suffering for us upon that cross as we gather around his table even in a few moments?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've granted unto us the inestimable privilege of preaching this one message that has turned the world upside down, this one message that has been the salvation of millions upon millions. We pray that we would preach it with fervor to the end of our days. We pray that this church would be a place where it is preached for generations to come. And we plead with you, Lord, that in our nation, which is hurtling down the precipice in its iniquity, we plead with you, Lord, that among all the wreckage, among all of the destruction, among all the anger and the hate and the, the strife, we pray, O oh Lord, that, that the message of the cross would resound once again loud and clear. We pray that many would be brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now as we gather around the table, Lord Jesus, that you would fellowship with us and that you would enable us by faith to look to you and to what you did upon the tree. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.